You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lalan. I'm happy to be joined by Julia Smith, who's a senior policy analyst for the Department for Women and Gender Equality at the Government of Canada. She's helped develop uh, Canada's first federal gender-based budgeting process, among many other accomplishments uh, as well. Julia, thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. So I thought maybe it would be good to kind of start uh, by backing up uh, a few years uh, you know, back in 2015, when uh, when Trudeau was uh, newly elected, there was a lot of media attention around a comment that he made, uh, which was, you know, the media asked him, why does he have so many females in his cabinet? And his uh, very eloquent comment was that because it's uh, 2015. How has this kind of changed the dynamic and views uh, within the government over the, the past few years? There's definitely been a significant shift within the government of Canada. Um, obviously, what he was getting at is Canada has one of the most educated uh, female workforces. We have extremely high labor force participation among women. And uh, it only makes sense that we would have equal representation uh, among leaders in Canada. The pragmatic reality is that having those women leaders at the table means that the conversation just shifts a little bit and that actually makes decision-making much stronger because the diversity of views means that when you're trying to go from the theoretical to implementation, you have already thought through different things. So one of the biggest things we see as we teach people how to do gender-based analysis is that often it's not malicious or intentional. It's that uh, it hadn't even occurred to people to think through uh, barriers that they were putting up uh, that were completely unintentional. So having those diverse voices uh, and the diversity goes beyond just gender, obviously, in his cabinet, but having different backgrounds, having rural, having old, having young, having immigrants, having visible minorities, having indigenous people, it actually means that you have a much more meaningful conversation because uh, you don't have an echo chamber. You don't have the same people uh, with the same life experience deciding things that actually are going to impact everybody else. So I saw this report from the uh, World Economic Forum a while ago that talked about how the, uh, with the current rate of change, it's going to take about 108 years to close the overall gender gap and, two, and over 200 years to bring uh, parity in the workplace. What do you figure are the three biggest challenges right now in closing the gap? Um, every country has its own specific context. Uh, for Canada, I would say there are a few, one being childcare. Uh, we know that women disproportionately bear the burden of unpaid labor in uh, the workforce. Uh, Statistics Canada actually runs a longitudinal study on this, and while that gap is closing, it still remains that women do significantly more unpaid labor. Uh, and they also are much more likely to be the caregivers of small children and the elderly. So having a system that is supporting that decision uh, rather than it being a necessity uh, is extremely important, as well as 
the work, uh, we're doing a fair amount of work on engaging men and boys because one of the ways you're going to shift what's called the mommy penalty is when it isn't just women because what we see is that men who do want to engage in the early years of their children's lives often face even more resistance because it's assumed that the wife will take it. So the the, the wife in a family that is a traditional male-female family will be assumed that she will be taking that, which affects her entire career progression through promotions, opportunities, and things like that. But then at the same time, uh, men will face an assumption that they aren't going to do that and face a different type of pressure. So one of the easiest ways we're going to have to change that is that it isn't one or the other who is going to contribute to the family, uh, the unpaid part of the family. Um, if it becomes equal, there will be no penalty. Uh, the other big factor is labor market segmentation. In Canada, we see a fair amount of that. We still see, for example, oil workers. You know, they're going to be a lot of very well-paid men. And then some fields like personal care support workers are disproportionately women and not as well paid. That also creates uh, part of the wage gap as opposed to a pay equity gap. Um, and I think the third thing is what we, we refer to as the leaky pipeline, that Canadian women are very highly educated. They're doing very well in school. Uh, entry level, we're not seeing as much of a gap as some other countries, but we are seeing them leave some of the uh, industries that are higher paid, especially in STEM. So that also contributes, and there are a fair number of factors there. It can be related to workplace culture, uh, opportunities, uh, the demands, and flexible workplace. And changing those three, three things would make a huge difference for uh, Canada's wage gap. So you touched on STEM. I think let's let's stay on that um, let's let's stay on that path for for a moment. Uh, obviously, economics 101 dictates that many times to increase the overall output, you need to increase the input. Uh, STEM being, uh, of course, science, tech, engineering, and math uh, skills uh, has, has in the past been a bit of a gap uh, for a number of females uh, going into school. I've had a number of university professors on. Uh, podcasts in the past, and they've often said that that is one of the biggest challenges that they often meet females at these recruiting days that say to them, you know, what kind of career can I get into if I hate math? Uh, and a lot of professors will say very few. Uh, what are we doing, and, and, and what are, what, what's your view of what we're doing? Are we doing enough to encourage girls to enter into these fields, and what more can we be doing? I think we're doing a lot to encourage girls at this point in time. Um, I think in terms of system structure, we're in a pretty good place. We're going to have to see what happens. Obviously, these are long-term sort of uh, investments. We, we won't see for 10 or 15 years how all of this focus actually turns out. And in reality, at the undergrad level, girls are pretty well represented uh, in STEM at this point in time. Uh, the problems are a little further down the line. And it's interesting because... It's not so easy as a direct cause and effect. Some of it is internalized culture. So uh, as you were saying, girls are like, I don't like math. And um, often that will be more that they are reading the subtle societal cues that 
boys are scientists and girls, you know, are carers. And um, there's a lot of culture change work, change work that would really need to happen to truly make that not a, a knee-jerk reaction. We definitely are seeing some of that happening. Uh, it comes down to even what's on a children's T-shirt. So you'll see shirts for boys with, uh, you know, spaceships and shirts for girls with ponies and more and more you're seeing people trying to actively mix up that narrative and that has such a huge impact on on both genders as they grow up they are taking a lot of their cues from uh from what is around them and that's even more complicated when we get into non-binary and people who don't clearly identify as one or the other so that's a big piece um the other piece is really cracking the nut of what's happening with the fact that we actually have strong outcomes at the younger age for girls. In fact, they're doing better than boys in in the earliest years on some of these skill sets. And we are still seeing that change as time goes on. And I think that's one of where our next focus would have to be. So when you look at Canada, you're obviously very in tune with everything that's going on here. And, of course, I'm sure you're taking a a look at other parts of the world. Um, How do you think we're doing on a relative basis, not necessarily to the more underdeveloped countries, more so to the more developed countries in terms of, you know, uh, entry-level jobs, obviously before that even getting uh, females more encouraged with with STEM-type subjects and then all the way, you know, going into mid-level, the C-suite, the board level. Um, I know that's a lot of questions in one, but maybe you can just kind of give a bit of a macro uh, view relative to the other countries out there. I think overall we're doing pretty well. Um, Obviously, there are lots of different metrics and lots of different factors. But in general, we're doing a good job of getting girls into the labor market. We're doing a good job of getting them educated. Um, We're doing a good job at um, putting in a lot of programming. A lot of it's not very old, so we're not necessarily seeing what that end result will be. Uh, But I think one of our challenges as an economy is that unlike a lot of the countries we compare ourselves to, um, we're still very much a primary industries economy in terms of major economic drivers, not only clearly, but we have such a high demand for certain trades uh, for uh, semi-skilled and and technically skilled workers in high-paid industries, whether it's oil or, um, you know, even still the forestry industry, manufacturing. And that, in some ways, impacts our outcomes, not so much once you get all the way to the C-suite. That's obviously slightly different. But in terms of true metrics, that, that remains um, a context that Canada has to grapple with uh, that's slightly different than especially some of our European uh, counterparts. Um, yeah, is there a country? Is there a country out there that you often try to, you know, uh, look at, look, emulate? I guess through some of your policy, like which country would you say out there is kind of, you know, got the best report card right now? Well, Iceland, obviously, but we yeah. always say that. Well. Iceland is amazing, and I spend a lot of time learning from them and talking to them and thinking about how to 
uh, learn the lessons out of their their particular system. The challenge for Canada is that Iceland is tiny, so yeah. it's it's more like you know the population's the size of New Brunswick, um, rather yeah, like than 300, 000, great big. Yeah, and they're they have a more integrated system. We have a very diffuse federalism. So there are definitely inspirations, and I spend more time talking about Iceland uh, since I've taken this job than I definitely have in my entire life. Uh, you'll be happy but, to know that uh, you'll be happy to know that the uh, the uh, president of Iceland and his wife have deep Canadian roots. I believe they both studied at U of T, and um, actually our CIO is is good friends with with them as well. So uh, there is some there are some leadership roots back to Canada. Oh, well, that's good to know. But um, also Sweden. Sweden has a, a lot of uh, interesting models that we watch and learn from. They're definitely ahead of us on some of the changes around men and boys and paternity leave, and, and we've spent a fair amount of time talking to them. Uh, Canada put in, uh, for the first time last year outside of Quebec, the uh, mandatory second parent leave, which just simply means that there are a certain number of weeks of the leave for uh, caregiving that only the second parent can take. Because one of the lessons we learned from Sweden is that we call it use it or lose it, that when it is the shared system that we had, those social pressures on both parents in the workplace meant that even when men wanted to, they often would not take that leave. But when it's use it or lose it, it just gives them that little extra confidence going to their employer. In fact, I can't give that to my wife. It's my leave. It's not. It's not right. for my wife. Um, so we definitely look to them. And honestly, I was in India recently and just watching some of the stuff going there. And this is where this is where policy is always interesting because people can have great ideas, but actually have the issue be at a different place. Obviously, in India, gender issues are just so – right now, they're they're so uh, on the surface, but they have so much further to go in a lot of ways. But some of the, the approaches people were taking, some of the – some of the things people were learning, um, and sometimes when you have really far to go, people get a little bit more innovative rather than uh, you don't want to risk losing what you've already gained. So there are definitely lessons to be learned around the world, uh, and that's why measuring and impact analysis is so important because cool ideas are everywhere. It's just figuring out which ones are actually going to address our context. So uh, impact is, is is a good is a good segue. Taking a look south of the border at the United States, um, obviously with the current government in power, are you seeing any overall tone changes, uh, positive or negative, uh, taking place there, or is it pretty much so well on its course that very difficult to derail? Because the automatic assumption would be with the current administration that they wouldn't make gender diversity a very high priority. Therefore, perhaps they've gone from an Obama administration that was somewhat proactive with increasing gender diversity, perhaps to a Trump administration that uh, is uh, a little less concerned about it. There have definitely been ups and downs in that administration on gender diversity. Uh, one thing that is very interesting in terms of anything that's social change based, which 
uh, obviously gender diversity is, is that you'll always see unevenness. You will see pushback. You will see advances. And what I notice there is a fair amount of unevenness. Uh, there have definitely been things that have been choices that were what many people would consider to be a step backwards. But at the same time, Me Too happened under this administration. The election of historic numbers of women to Congress happened under this administration. So um, gender diversity is so much bigger than government action. So what's happening on gender diversity in the U.S. right now is just fascinating to watch because it is definitely – one step back to it, it's it's almost snakes and ladder right so what you read the news one day and you're like oh god and then the next day you read something else and you're like oh wow that's really interesting and that's going to move things forward so right it's it's definitely a moment of change and which direction it's changing is is yet to be determined uh but there's rapid transformation happening, and I can't honestly tell you where it will end up, but I'm definitely hoping it, hoping on the side of, uh, you know, more leadership for women and, and a better world for women in a short period of time. So one of, uh, as you know, one of our ETFs focuses on investing in companies that have uh, increase their overall gender diversity right across the entire vertical of their organization. Probably the biggest pushback that we get uh, from prospective investors is they can't find the connect or they can't necessarily believe that increasing gender diversity actually leads to better performing companies. What's your What's your overall view on that? Well, there's increasing research that, in fact, it does, um, especially as we move into a disruptive economy. So it comes back to the fact of a little bit like plant biodiversity. If if we have only one product, one plant, and we have no other versions of it, it may perform amazingly but it's going to have weaknesses. And as soon as you hit those weaknesses, that plant will die out. So in a sense, it's exactly the same thing. As you have more and more diverse views, diverse skill sets, you actually build the resiliency of your company. And you also increase, increase the creativity because echo chambers are not very creative. They will be a whole bunch of people who think the same thing, reinforcing each other. So, the best way to weather a transforming economy is to actually make sure you're harnessing a diversity of ideas. And gender is just one of those things. It's also about, you know, the move towards interdisciplinary training and uh, not just hiring engineers in the engineering firm. So you have other people who have different ways of thinking about things. But there's more and more research that as we move to the 3D printing, AI, uh, uh, you know, all of this stuff, what the companies that are going to survive are the ones that are diverse, encourage diverse thinking, and capitalize on that diverse thinking because they are going to be the resilient companies who pop out the other end and adapt. We're about to go into an adaptation economy, so in order to adapt, you have to have uh, internal discussions that are not always comfortable where everyone doesn't agree. 
Right. So along those lines, um, what would you say are your kind of top two or three predictions over the next decade as it relates to gender diversity? Um, I think that's that's a bit tough. I more work on the other side of making sure that this amazing opportunity of a transforming economy. I am, I always joke that I'm a chaos monkey. I am the person who sees big change as the time to create something very different and fun. Um, what I see is two potential paths. If we aren't addressing diversity right now, we're just going to re-entrench or worsen a lot of the inequality in our society. So, for example, when they developed Siri initially, uh, the developers had an answer. If you asked Siri, Siri, I'm having a heart attack, it would tell you what to do and it would call 911. If you asked Siri, Siri, I've been raped, it said nothing. And that's not out of maliciousness. That's out of a limited uh, team that did not think through different realities. So the point is, you know, right now we are making that future and we can make it in a way that it builds a more equal society or we can make it in a way where we reinforce inequalities and create new barriers. So it's right now that's important more than 20 years from now because we actually get to be the people who determine whether or not that becomes, you know, the Jetsons or it becomes one of many, you know, movies about the world falling apart. So um, I think that's my biggest thing is that I would like to predict that right now we're going to actually be very thoughtful and um, engage all the brilliance we have around the world and capitalize on globalization and all of the creativity that exists to take this opportunity to make a new reality that is extremely positive rather than negative. That's great. Well, listen, Julie, I really wish you well in uh, all of your initiatives. I think they're super important. Uh, I have two 10-year-old daughters, and I hope that they will be uh, big beneficiaries of some of the policies that you're working on uh, for the Canadian government. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.